My name is Cheryl. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, um, and it's so strange to speak at this meeting because, you know, this is my home group. And so it's, even last night I had that speaking nightmare, you know, I don't know if you all have these, but it's where like you're at a meeting and you're speaking and someone's on the telephone, people are talking, they're getting bring their format, you know, it's a nightmare scenario that might in my head. And, so I had to let it go, and then when I come here, I see everyone, I go, like, really, what am I going to talk about? Because, right? <laughs> I mean, if you had questions, you're going to ask me after the meeting anyway, you know, it's like, so it's like one of those things anyway. I digress. But uh, it's on podcast, which means there's another chance for some, someone else to hear me on another podcast, I guess. Anyway, um, I'll qualify. My top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds, and I have 34 years of abstinence. <laughs> I, you know, I, I should say, I mean, I always start my pitch typically with I was born. And it really is. I mean, it was from the get-go, I kind of destined for a 12-step program. Um, some 12-step program, whether it was AA, OA, DA, you, you know, uh, uh, you name it, you name it, and I probably could have wound up in it. Um, the good news, bad news is, I just never cyclicals at age four. And uh, the, the, the bad news is I just started cyclicals at age four, and it, I became, I got my fix at age four, but it was that, that rush that came over me with the cyclicals, that it was this, life was horrible in my childhood, and it was like, that gave me that moment of, of peace, that moment of like, that sense of comfort, and, uh, and I found my drug. So, I mean, the, I guess the good news is I didn't need to go find heroin. You know, I didn't need to go um, act out sexually. I didn't need to go, you know, into alcoholism. I discovered a drug at an early age. And it, it ravaged my body. Um, as you'll see from this photo, that's my senior picture. And it ravaged my body. Um, my brother is two years older than me. He suffers from this disease. He has raised his hand um, at an OA meeting. So I can say he's a compulsive reader. Um, I could never say that until he raised his hand because only we can diagnose ourselves. Um, and I'm a firm belief that you can be 20, 30 pounds away, 40 pounds away, and not be a compulsive reader. Because the bottom line for us, when we raise our hand that says I'm a compulsive reader, we admit that we're a palace of food and our lives have become unmanageable. We make that admission saying that that food reacts differently to me than a normal person. And uh, as science gets more involved, you know, or evolved, they see how our brain lights up like a Christmas tree. You know, and uh, when we get our drug of food, it lights up like a heroin addict. But basically there is no difference when it comes to that, that, you know, we have this addiction. And our literature was so advanced. I mean, if you read the doctor's opinion, um, not if, read the doctor's opinion. <laughs> read it. It's one of my favorite chapters in the big book. And one of the reasons why is because it's really, it's, it's the, the A, big book is our text. So it talks about, I mean, and it's, it's not even chapter one, it's like the prologue to our textbook. And it's written by a doctor because back in the 30s they had to convince people 
that we were not crazy by thinking that we could do this, that we could get sober, or they could get sober and not have to have some weird treatment. So they had to get medical profession to say, no, trust this guy. And they even said, like in the, in the doctor's opinion, talked about how you can trust these men of integrity, which was a novel concept. Because for us, as compulsive readers, integrity is not our strong suit. Um, and the reason why is because we will lie, cheat, or steal to make, to make you like us. We will lie, cheat, or steal to make you like us. And, and whether it's stealing to buy, to get something materialistic, to impress you with my wealth, whether it's lying about what I want or what I need to make you happy, we will do whatever it takes so that we can survive. So I survived in this family by eating. Um, I went to my first OA meeting when I was 17 in 1973. Um, and I, I literally, I mean, I, I, I found at my first OA meeting hope. Because this guy got up and said he had lost 100 pounds and he was keeping it off. And that was beyond my comprehension. At 325 pounds, to lose 100 pounds was beyond my comprehension. And to say that you had kept it off was beyond my comprehension. Because at age 17, I was already a hopeless, compulsive reader who didn't have any hope um, and was just knew I was going to be destined to live, to live the rest of my life fat and miserable. Um, and for me, those two words go together. They, 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 they go together. Oh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, I think there's one reason that makes me a compulsive reader because I don't know how to separate those two words. I just don't know how. And that, what that means, to, what that tells me is that I'm looking to my physical appearance to make me okay. And I it still had that hard separation from that. So I, I, um, I came on my first, I came to OA, like someone was on the team, and I didn't need the steps. Um, they were for my sick alcoholic parents. I, I didn't need God. I prayed to God. And, you know, God was so punishing. He gave me sick alcoholic parents. He gave me 325 pounds. And he was punishing for all those horrible thoughts and deeds I had done. And I was a 17-year-old boy who basically did nothing except eat. <coughs> but I had the deep dark thoughts where I, I knew from a very early age that I was gay. And I knew that that was God's punishment for me. I knew that beyond the shadow of a doubt that my parents and my weight was God's business. So I couldn't really trust the God. And so I, basically I, I, I um, took a food plan that you guys offered at that time. It was uh, a gray sheet of paper. And I lost 125 pounds in about five months. Um, and it was an amazing... Um, Roller coaster, but you know, I always say that at age seven, a seventeen-year-old boy who often starts eating two eggs and an orange for breakfast, and go, and I'm working during the day on a shipping and loading dock, for looking mad ramps. So I went from a sedentary high school life to a summer job of looking mad ramps and eating two eggs and an orange for breakfast. I dropped weight like that. So if you're comparing yourself, how you didn't lose 125 pounds in five months, because that's what we do, right? We compare. I mean, that, that's the reason why one of our saying slogans is compared to despair. You know, because we know who we are. When we raised our hand and said we're supposed to read it, it says many, many things about us. 
It doesn't say that I'm just overweight. It says that I that I care too much. And our literature says that we're sensitive people. We're childish. Which is an, an attack upon us that, that doesn't sometimes feel right. But when we start writing our inventory, and you, if you have not in your inventory, write that inventory. When we start writing the inventory, we will start seeing patterns where we become childish. Where we expect Santa Claus to be there day in and day out. Um, so anyway, I, I lost the weight, didn't work the program, so I had to go back out and eat again. And I did. I gained, I got back about 250 pounds in college. And then I came out of the closet, and that led to weight loss. Um, because I wasn't eating one of those deep dark secrets. Um, and I openly say, but it's so true, that before I, uh, before I came out, they said, so if you lose the weight, you'll get the girl. I don't really care. And after I came out, they said, so if you lose the weight, you'll get the boys. And I thought, no, that's the reason to stop. <laughs> I, I learned one thing the first time in the way, the first time around. You folks taught me it's not the hundredth fight that puts the weight on, it's the first. Because of the, of the doctor's opinion where it says, I can have the obsession of the mind all day long. All day long where I'm going to stop and get my donuts. I'm going to stop and get my donuts. I'm going to stop and get my donuts. Because I'm a donut junkie. I'm going to stop and get my donuts. But not until I take that first bite of a donut. Do I lose the power to stop eating? Because the physical addiction for me kicks in. So it talks about the obsession and the compulsion. And the obsession is when the mind races. And you know how our mind races? You know, you get a thought in there and just spins. It just spins. And it just spins. And it, you're almost saying the same thought over and over again, but you think it's a brand new thought and it's relative and it's like this is the truth. And because it's just spinning, you say enough times you believe it. And so, um, that if, I mean, but then when I take that my first bite, it says in our literature that I'm feeding the addiction. That I'm feeding the addiction. That I don't have the choice anymore. That I lost the choice to eat, and I will make that supreme sacrifice for one more bite. My supreme sacrifice, a lot of you know the story, is that I, at age, um, I got down to like 170, 160 pounds. Okay, 160, 175 pounds. That's not 160 pounds. Let's maintain my weight on that uh, by what I call my donut diet, which is you don't eat anything all day long, just stuff nine or ten donuts at eleven or two o'clock in the morning on the way home from a disco track. Um, and I had to have my donuts because that was the way I dealt with the obvious rejection I felt at the disco track and all the self hatred that I had towards myself while I'm sitting in a dark bar. That all that stuff I had to, I had to, I, I don't just find you, why you had to get my food. I just had to get my food so I could, so I could breathe. I could breathe on the inside. So I could often get my, I didn't always eat my donuts. I could sometimes just buy my donuts, have them in the car with me, and my shoulders would relax. And I would go, okay, I can breathe. And then I would bite my donuts, and then I would, the addiction would kick in, and then I'd hate myself in the morning, and I swear I was never going to do that again. I was going to write how horrible I feel in the morning, and I'd put it on the refrigerator so I would never, ever do that again, and then I'd repeat the pattern over and over and over and over again. And that's what makes me a compulsive reader. When I know, I know what it does to me, but I make the supreme, supreme sacrifice one more time to do that. So my supreme sacrifice was, I was like, I came my way to 160 pounds, and I wound up going to Europe 
And before I went to Europe, um, a, a doctor told me that if I did not stop eating sugar, I'd be blind within a year. From either hypoglycemia or diabetes. Because uh, it was in my family. Um, my grandmother died from didn't take body parts, and when they took her second leg, that's when she died. Um, and so, when I told him that, told my eye doctor that, the one who had been my ch- eye doctor from, from childhood, he said those words. You would be blind within a year if you don't stop eating sugar. I went to Europe and put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And while I was changing my way through Europe, um, I remember thinking in my head, I can still see. And when things start to go gray, that's when I will stop. Mm-hmm. And that is why I always want to remember the supreme sacrifice I will make. I will only sacrifice my mm-hmm. eyesight for one more bite of chocolate. And it wasn't going to be uh, all the chocolate. It wasn't going to be 30 pounds. It was just because I need my chocolate now. You know, not, I wasn't thinking like, oh, well, I'm going to have chocolate tomorrow and the next day and the next day. No, tomorrow's going to be different. But right here, right now, I need my chocolate. So um, I came back from Europe and I went back to Oregon, came back to Oregon on it. I say always that all my excuses. The reason why I couldn't come back to OA the second time around was because I was gay. I knew you guys didn't like gay people. Um, I was now, you were all housewives. Um, <laughs> you were, um, and I couldn't do that whole eating thing that you guys had that great sheet of paper. And my first meeting with a moderator was a man. And then I found out that uh, there was seven nights, I mean, some nights a week at the gay and lesbian community service thing. Now, all those excuses I had because I couldn't come back to the anonymous were in my head. So that's why I know if you ever leave us, all those excuses you have for why you can't come back, they're not our excuses. They're not our reasons. They're your reasons. So I, I came back to the reason I was going to get very active and I went to, uh, I was going to six other meetings a week and doing, I mean, basically I became a member of Obi's Anonymous. The first time I became a tourist, when I came in the brain at 17, I was a tourist. I came once a week whether I needed it or not, worked a food plan, and did work a step. And I, I call it being a tourist. Second time around, I came back and I I, uh, I became a member, and I had a spiritual experience. Um, nothing very exciting, just basically walking through Roxbury Park after a meeting on Friday night. I heard a small, still voice in front of me that said, "Tomorrow you're going to be okay. You have much right to be here as this tree, as that tree." And it was the first time in my life I didn't feel like I was breathing your air. It was, the first time, it was the first time in my life I didn't feel like any second now any one of you could come and snatch the life out of me. And when you live your life based upon that, that feeling, you need to eat. You need to eat because if any second somebody can come and snatch your breath away, then you need to eat so you can survive, so you can breathe one more day. So I had that first experience, and so I had lost the weight I had gained, and I wound up um, going to my sponsor, uh, sponsor's house around... Um, just before Christmas, and saying, you know, Paul, I'm sick and tired of being told badass people. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot eat, when I can and cannot eat. On a Friday night, when I got dancing with the boys in Palm Springs, and I only sent them down to me and see their side of my house. And I was done with you folks. Because, see, I don't want to be you folks. I don't want to be a compulsive leader. I'd rather be a French heroine addict. 
I'm <laughs> <laughs> from addiction, you know, that not off and had burn marks and be very cool and chic or whatever. Right? That's what we think, right? That's what we think. If I could only be a heroin addict, then I could have burn marks on my arms, but that's when I nodded off and the cigarette fell out of my hand, up out of my mouth. You know, that's all. We just, you know, we just nod out. But that's what we did with food. We nodded out with food, but, you know, it's, you don't have burn marks. You have stretch marks. You know? And so basically, <coughs> my sponsor said some magic words to me. And I always like to share these all kinds of things. He says, Remember, Carol, you're leaving us, we're not leaving you. And if you ever want to come back, we'll be here. And I said, Well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> I mean, I, I was done. I was done. And on January 5th, 1979, I broke my absence and two, two pieces of toast. And that's my last inch. Two pieces of toast. If I had my toast, I saw the donuts, and I was going to go back out, and I got really scared. Because you folks said the door will always swing out, but you never, never know if the door will swing back in. And one more time, I left ovaries and on. And I got so scared because I did not know if I could come back again. And I, and I said, you know, I, got, I went to bed, and I started praying, and said, God, please help me. I cannot do it one more time. I cannot do it one more time. And I'll be very clear what I was talking about was nothing about weight because I maintained my weight at 160 pounds on the donut diet. What I was talking about was the mental obsession of the mind that says, how much do I weigh? How much what do you think of me? Oh my God, I've got to get thinner so that I can be better. Oh my God, I've got to get some more money. Oh my God, I've got to... That, that mental obsession of the mind that just beats me up and makes me feel like a piece of crap no matter what I do. And if I can only, if I could only do what something, if I could change, then he would like me and then I would be like myself and then I'd be happy. I couldn't live that life one another day. So I came back over as anonymous. Now I wish to God that I could say that, you know, once you get abstinent, life will become rosy. <laughs> what happens is when you become abstinent, you stop eating over your issues. You stop eating over your problems. You become more comfortable in your own skin. You become more comfortable in your own body. But I got news for you. In 34 years, my life has not been protected. It has had a lot of ups and downs. I don't, I mean, I, I hear this a lot in meetings where I hear as an, a concept of God as a slot machine where if you put in 10 prayers and 5 meditations, crank the handle, you will get something. <laughs> you will get something back. You know, I mean, I've driven down to San, San Diego, spoke at a meeting, like an hour and a half meeting, driving back from San Diego, the, the, the bottom of my car, the cover bottom of my engine, fell on the freeway, I pull off the freeway, I, I do this turn trying to get to a, a, a gas station, I get pulled over and given a ticket for an illegal U-turn or a little bit of a Really? Really? <laughs> So if you think that by doing something good, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you in the last five minutes what has happened to me. I become comfortable in my own skin. I breathe. I'm not afraid. Now, I told you this morning I was afraid of, the, of speaking here, that it was going to be someone came in the phone, blah, blah, blah. But I know that's my head. I know it's not reality. I have an amazing life. 
I am blessed. It's amazing what uh, I've had character defects been removed. At age at 18 years of absence, I was kissing and crying about how I didn't feel part of the group. Even though I had been thrown this amazing 40th birthday party that I still talk about this day, that people would, that I didn't feel like I belonged to that party. And I was crying about it. This is the best it gets at age 18, 18 years of absence. Oh well. I now feel like I fit in. I used to complain and whine and kiss and moan that I want to be sexually free. I just want to be able to cruise boys and just have these free about that and look at, you know, whatever. And I see some cute guy to walk up and say hi. I want to be sexually free. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone. What happened is I don't care anymore. I found that character defect of trying to find peace and freedom through sexuality or through sex can't be removed. It's not important. I try to impress upon my sponsees and anyone who asks me. It's an inside job. You, we cannot look outside. If I'm looking outside for something to fix me, they will disappear. When I was about 13, 14 years absent, here's what I get to talk about when I was 13, 14 years absent. Do you realize that when I was got asked Jimmy Carter was the president? <laughs> I believe, 1979, it was Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was the president. That's when I got asked So can I, if I can tell you about how much life you can live, I have troubled the world. So I've been, I've been constantly reminded I had a sponsor who kept taking me back to God. And I said, no, give me an imagery to write. Tell me what to do, just blah, blah, blah. And she took me back to God. And I say, and I, to this day, I always say, she never sponsored me right. Because I always wanted to take me through the book and, and to, you know, do all that stuff. And she kept taking me back to God. And that's what I try to do with my sponsor. When they say, well, okay, you're the answer, whatever, tell me. It's like, no. I'm just going to pass on my experience that the answer lies with God. Now, your higher power can fix up anything you want. My higher power has changed so much through the years. Uh, today, I'm an atheist. My sponsor gets upset when I say that. He says, no, you're agnostic. No, I'm an atheist. I do not believe in a supreme being. But when I use the word God to my sponsor, or when I use the word God to my folks, what it means in my head is I turn my will, my life over here of a, of a higher sense of self that doesn't live in fear and anxiety. That when I, I move to the universe with peace and comfort, that I stop fighting everything and everyone. And I get results. I get results not of a parking place, not of slot machines. I'm comfortable in my own skin. And what I've learned today. You know when I ate my fudge stick at age four, and I took that bite and I was like, I can achieve the same thing from what you folks taught me by just breathing. Mm-hmm. So I can go, and the traffic doesn't seem so bad. The fact that something didn't happen doesn't seem so bad because I found peace. I found comfort. And that's what this program guarantees us. 
does not promise you a husband, a spouse. It does not promise you money. It does not promise you a car. It does not promise you an apartment. It does not promise you any material thing. Well, we do promise you weight loss. We do promise you you will remain, achieve and maintain your normal body size. Because if you live in your, that higher power, you will not need to eat. You will not need to overeat to satiate that fear and anxiety that we have. And that's what this program does. It takes us to God so we don't have to overeat or undereat or hate ourselves. It takes us to God. It says that having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we practice these principles in all our affairs. And that's what this program is. For the 34 years, I hope that God you find peace. And if you're in that five to seven year range around, ten year range, bless your heart. <laughs> if you're at seven years of absence, baby, just hang in there. It gets better. And I'm not mine. It gets better. And if you're new, hang on to me to have a ride with me worth every minute. And if it didn't get better, I would have left. And if they didn't get better with the people that I see with long-term abstinence, even though we have our ups and downs, even though we have really bad days, sometimes a bad year, when I was 20 years abstinence, one of the worst years of my life. But I abstained to it so that I could live, so that I could get to the other side, so I can now back to where I am now, which is centered in God, and I can breathe. And that's what you get from working a 12-step program. Thanks for letting me share. <laughs> this is the type of questions only. There is no sharing this meeting. If you need to share, please do so upon your request of the meeting. Also, please remember the opinions of the leader on my own and not those of Overeaton Knowledge as a whole. When asking questions, you need to identify yourself. Um, if, please remember if you are a question, you can be audible on the OI podcast. Um, that should be stuff at 850. Thank you very much, Carol. Could you please talk about your uh, nine-step event and uh, how you do a ten-step today? Um, I'm not really. Oh, uh, how do I do the about uh, nine-step event and how do I do a ten-step today? Um, I don't have any dramatic nine-step events. I I really don't. Um, I mean, I have events where I've, I've had to go like. I don't have nice information from the past. Um, I've apologized to my mother because I don't, I don't talk to her. Um, I made amends to Trader Joe's because I think I wound up with $20 extra cash. And I walked up to the, to the uh, and I kept it. And then I had to go back and give me $20 to say, here, I think the, the cashier did this. I, uh, I've made amends for many things, but it's as, as I go. I clean up as I go and I say, I'm sorry, and I try to do the best not to do it again. Um, and it's like the Trader Joe's, I stopped playing Trader Joe's because I felt so guilty and ashamed. And that it's not worth, my soul is not worth the price of $20. And my, the fact that I can go to Trader Joe's, or scared to go to Trader Joe's, was not worth $20. And it's not worth $2,000. Because the price on my soul is too much, and that's why I make them in. Ten steps. You know, and there's, when I do these, how do I at age 34, it is not like 34 days. Let's be very clear. 
What I do at age 34 is not what you do at 34. When I was new, I was writing inventories every night, and I did it in many ways. I did free flowing, I did the left hand for God, I did many, many ways. Today, it's a mental spot check. Um, I meet with someone once a month, kind of write down what's going on. I have friends that I sit and talk with. Non-normal friends, I mean normal friends, total <laughs> um, <laughs> friends and normal friends. And one thing that's amazing is that, you know, we t- one of the classic things we have heard is that there are, oh, the normal people, there's no such thing. Yes, there is. But when we're in our disease, we don't like them. We don't like them. Because they make us feel less than. Or we define those nor- non-normal friends we can feel better than. But when you become comfortable in your own skin, I have friends that are very normal. I mean, just run-of-the-mill average. And I get to talk to them, and they give me great input. You know? So, next question. Thank you. How does your breathing and your awareness of how you just your God affect your abs? Um, how does my God affect my abstinence? It's either I breathe or I eat. I mean, it's as simple as that. Our program is very clear. We have a spiritual awakening to one of these steps, which makes us we don't want to eat. So if I, if I don't take my life to a higher power, I will have to go back and eat. So when I go... The desire to stop to overeat is not there. Uh, the classic example I used, and this is how I kind of got this whole concept, was I was getting acupuncture, and I asked, and I was a major nail biter for years and years, and I asked my acupuncture if she could put needles in me to stop me from biting my nails, and she said no, but I can put needles in you so make it take some away that some of the stress, so you don't need to feel the need to bite your nails. No. And that's what I look at this program. This program takes away the anxiety, so I don't need to overeat. How do I get rid of the anxiety? I go to a power greater than myself that is um, a higher sense of self that I can breathe. Now, in the first 20, 30 years, 20 years, I told my sponsor, I said, you need to find a power greater than yourself, a higher power you can label and put it down on paper so that if you don't have that higher power, at that point in time, you can go to that higher power and you can say, this is what it is. You know, if you want to go catch a bus, go to a bus stop. You know, if you want to get in touch with God, go to prayer and meditation. If, you, if you're trying, if you're stuck with those concepts of God, so what? Use mine. Mine's big enough. It's not limited. So it's like one of those things where we say, okay, God, I trust. Even when you're lying to yourself. I, I, I say that, you know what, I might be full of crap. Really, I mean, my, this whole thing I set up here was, I mean, there's no God, there's nothing. It's just we're amoebas, blah, blah, blah. What, you know, we're primordial. What, it doesn't make, it, the major point is, I'm happy. Right? So what, so, it's like, if you're trying to find that perfect God, well, we're perfectionists. That's what we want. We want the perfect God, the God that's going to be everything. And our mind is the higher sense of self that says that stop fighting trust. Believe that you will be taken care of. And I get to, I remind my sponsors that we have first world problems. 
I look at I'll tell them, you're not being, you don't live in fear, you're not being bombed, you're not worried about your spouse being late, you don't have to worry about clean water. What's your problem? You know? What's your problem? And they go like, yeah, I know, and I, I'm not delivering the problem. I just say, let's get some perspective here. Right? Let's get some perspective. So, that sense of breath, and I know that if, I believe if I was homeless, I've been physically ill, I've been in severe pain when I had my hip replaced, all that stuff, the breath helps me to relieve anxiety and not to go. Next question. Thanks. Um, as you mentioned after you get after I did not have to care over your hunky um, can you talk about your relationship to the promises? Well, they, well, I hated, oh, what's my relationship to the promises? I hated hearing them read in the, at the end of meetings. Constantly hated them hearing read because they didn't come, weren't coming true in my life. And they, I, one of my favorite sayings is, are you using the 12 steps as a whipping stick or as a measuring stick? And I was using the 12 steps as a whipping stick to beat myself up because I was not good enough. If I could only just do better, then I could, maybe the promises come true in my life. I come from the school that you work all 12 steps every year of your every day of your life. But it takes a step a year to work you. The promises come after the ninth step. The promises kind of came true after nine years. Baby, what's your rush? Where are you going? Where are you going to go? But if we don't have this game plan in here that says, okay, week one we do this, week two you're going to discuss your mother, week three you're going to discuss your father, week five you're going to discuss your boss, week six you're going to talk about your family, week seven you're going to talk about financial, and week eight you get to graduate and out the door. <laughs> we say here, your mind is not going away. That we have a 12-step program that helps us rework the brain. So the promises become completely true in my life. But in the beginning, I live in fear of it. I've been answered the question. Next question. You can ask me any time. Okay, so what do you do when life just keeps growing? Life trends or life just keeps growing so fast. You know, it's not the best stuff in the world. It's like one after the other. And like, you know, what the what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So, um, how do you deal with that? Is there is there something specific you do? Yes. If if life is throwing crap my way and consistently throwing crap my way, what do I do to find that peace and happiness? Right, is what I'm hearing. I have to constantly remind myself it's not an outside uh-huh. job. That if I'm, the reason why I'm in comfort my own stand is because some person, place, or thing is unacceptable to me. And that it's a spiritual action that if I'm like, uncomfortable here, there's something going on with me, that I'm not reacting to it. There's a spiritual principle that says equanimity, that whether it's good or bad, you just let it flow through you. When I was in severe pain with my hip, and I'm in severe pain writhing on the floor, I mean, so bad. Um, that I that I had to say, okay, flow with the pain. Don't resist the pain. Be part of the pain. So I do that with, uh, and it helps, because when I'm fighting the chance and resist, when I'm fighting resisting life, I'm not in the flow. I'm not having my sense of higher self. So I literally go, now, 
a lot of you know that I, I have a bookkeeping service. And tax time is really stressful for me. And this lady here constantly reminds me, it's just January. It's just January. You go through this every January. I got it. And she goes, it's just January. Which reminds me that not that it's just breathe. This too shall pass. And, and let it go. And don't get wrapped up in like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So no matter, and when I talk about 2000 being a really crappy year, I had LASIK surgery, didn't go well. I had my sister, who was most important person in my life, died. I wound up uh, quitting my business and going to Denver, Colorado. For three months there, I realized it was bad. And I, I was kind of staying in Denver. And I said I'd rather put hamburgers in Los Angeles than having a, a high-power job in, in Denver. I came back to Los Angeles. That was in six months. It's an inside job. Not out there. You take your eyes off about there and put it back and saying, I will find peace no matter what the situation is. I will find comfort no matter what the situation is. Because when I'm not, it's because you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. Because if only you would do it right, then I can be happy. Right? What other tools besides, besides using the breath? 12 steps. I worked 12 step program for 34 years. One, and then I have powers over the situation that my life is unmanageable. Two, came to raise that power greater than myself. I turned to the breath, can restore me to steady. Three, made a decision, turn my will, my life will take care of that. Four, look at my character defects. Five, own them. Six, said, okay, this, I can, ch- this can change. Seven, humbly ask for those to be removed, which means that I have to let go of my ego that says, oh, no, oh, no, I am right here. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing is you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And one thing that happened in 2000, my, my previous partner came back to Los Angeles and said he wanted half of the business that I had just redeveloped. And wanted the phone number that was my phone number for years with my name on the telephone bill. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? I want to be happy. Step eight and nine, you go back and clean up the garbage so you don't feel, uh, you don't, you're not afraid of anyone. So you can walk in any place in peace. Step ten, continue your personal inventory when long promptly admitted it. Because it's literally, you continue to check yourself out. What's my motive? What's my motive? What's my motive? If my motive is selfish and self-centered, then I need to go back and change. If it's trying to be of service and just love, that's amazing. Step 11, stop your prayer meditation. And step 12, practice these principles. So that is how I do it outside of the breath. Now, I'm going to make a pitch here. It's called service. Get off your asses. Get off your asses. You will not stay abstinent. Well, I shouldn't say this. You will not find the peace and happiness that you look at me and go like, oh, I want what he has. 
I've been a treasurer of the inner group. I have worked in the inner group level, uh, uh, the meeting level. I have traveled around this country. I've gone to Anchorage, Alaska in January with a really bad hip, slip and fell at the airport. You know, um, what else? Oh, I have um, uh, been the Region 2 Treasurer Convention twice now. And how did I improve my program at age 17, 18 years of absence? or 19, 20-something years of absence? How did I improve my program? I got on the LA Intergroup board. Why? Because they said they needed someone. They needed a treasurer. I'm a bookkeeper. Do I turn my back on my intergroup and say, oh, no, I can't? And when it's talked about seventh tradition, we are self-supplying our, our own contributions, it does not say money. It talks about our labor, too. So I don't care how much money you have. You can be self-supplying your own contributions. This group, the Elders Anonymous will die. Will die if we do not be of service. It will die. And what you say is, is you saved your life, it will die. I have seen meetings fail. I have seen in 34 years this, this program expand in the 80s. I've seen it die almost in the, in the late 80s, early 90s because they, the uh, uh, eating disorders were shipping in too many people that we could not deal with. say, oh no baby, that's not how we do this here. This is not what this is about. We didn't have sponsors. Then there was the teddy bear craze, and oh my God, that is insane. The teddy bear, the inner child is going to save us. No, God is what saves us. No teddy bear is going to save your life. A higher power is. So I, I joke, but I am being 100% serious. The birthday party can die. When I say, when, when there won't be another birthday party, and do you know what that means for the interview? That means no office. No office. So when, once again, if you've been to interviews, and I have been to Alaska, where there is a one meeting, one day a week, in a town that has no bridges, no roads to it, from the outside world, and this meeting, woman sits there every week with a big book, hoping someone else to show up. And you want to complain. You want to complain. That's my lecture about service because it is to save your ass, not mine. That's why you sponsor it, to save your ass, not your sponsee. What do your sponsee say that's and that's not your business? Because if you can save a sponsee's ass, if you can keep your sponsee absent, then by God, I want you to sponsor me. <laughs> right? Because that makes it easy. Oh, I'll just turn my will life over care of you. You tell me exactly what to do, and then I know that I'm fine. Get out of your sponsee's life. Tell them what you do to make your life successful. Then let them go live their life. Because you know what? The disease is more powerful than any word you can ever say. And you will, they will kill themselves. And you have to let people die. And I've seen people, I don't want the most, one of the most dearest women in my life, I've seen her put on 400 pounds. And I lived with her. And she binge fought with, lived with her. And that's the reason why I know I don't make any difference. So I think my time is up. Uh, I kind of apologize for the tone, the lecture. This is not the pitch I was going to give when I walked in the door. But the words are true. The words are true. Um, it is now time for Secretary's announcement.